for the time that we've had to come and to worship you and to open our hearts in praise and adoration of Jesus and who he is and what he's done. For he is Lord. He is Lord over this house. He's Lord over our lives. He's Lord over, over the universe. For you have established him, Father, as Lord. And we come as a people who have committed our lives to him. And Father, we're trusting this morning in the Holy Spirit because there's something that I believe that you want, he wants to say to us. And I do not have the ability in myself to communicate or even understand what it is, but you do by your Spirit. And we thank you that you've not left us hopeless, but you helpless, but you've given your Spirit to live in us and to be present here among us as we've worshipped and acknowledged the authority and the Lord, Lordship of Jesus Christ over this place and over this Word. And so, Father, we ask you by the Holy Spirit to take this Word and to breathe it into our hearts. May we have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to grasp what the Spirit is saying to each of us today. And as best I know how, Father, I yield my mind and my tongue and my heart to only say what you would say and only with your heart that the power of and the glory of it may be of you and not by any man. And for this we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been talking for some time now, over a year probably, on and off, about that God wants to take us as a church on a journey. And, and I was preparing today, uh, this week for today, to begin a series that will lead us in that direction. And then I, God began to dictate something. The Holy Spirit just began to, I've, I've had this happen before, but not often. Something just began to pour out of me of a vision. And then I realized as I looked at this, this was something that before I announced it to you, I need to share this with the elders. So I'm putting this, that off a week till I have a chance to, to share some of this with them first. Um, so I said, all right, Lord, what do I do? And well, some of the scriptures that I had begun to look at began to jump off at me. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 2 Timothy, the book of 2 Timothy. Um, and because some of what we'll start with next week begins in here, it begins at the end of this, and really was in the course of, of kind of doing the, the background and leading up to it, the, these ideas began to germinate in me for this morning. And what we're going to go into today is, this is a very important letter. It's, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. Paul, as you look at the, book of the, end, of, the end of the book of Acts, Paul is imprisoned in Rome. But Paul goes to, through two imprisonments. That first imprisonment was for a year or several years, and he was basically in a, a rented house. He was under house arrest, essentially. And he could have visitors, he could have people come and go. Uh, he had basically had a ch house church going on in there. And it was really a center of Paul's ministry spreading around the world. And then at some point he was released. There are different theories of where he went because it's not in the Scriptures. But one of the, the men that he led to the Lord, one of the men that was under him, because what Paul was doing was Paul was training the next generation of leaders. And that's so important. We'll talk about that in a minute. Paul was training the next generation of leaders, and the principal among them was Timothy. Timothy was a man, in fact, Tony Cook, who's been here a number of times, has a book, In Search of Timothy's. Because Timothy had, was, was a man that was, was, was submitted under Paul's ministry, was a disciple of Paul, but Paul, he was the one Paul could trust in more than anyone else. Paul had others. He had Apollos, who was a great teacher, but Apollos wasn't there always when Paul, Tim, Paul needed him. But Timothy was always there. So Paul entrusted him. So Paul now, when this letter is written, is in his second imprisonment. In this imprisonment, he's imprisoned by Nero, who was the emperor, the fifth emperor of Rome. Nero's the one that the joke is he fiddled while Rome burned. 
I don't want to go into all of that right now. But, but he started out really as a decent emperor, and then he married the wrong woman. <laughs> and we won't go there this morning. And, and things went downhill fast, and he ended up having failures in his... wanting to do things personally to build a huge... He wanted to build a huge palace for himself, and in order to raise the money for that, he decided to burn Rome. It, it doesn't make sense, but that's what he did. And then what he did is he blamed Christians for setting Rome on fire. And so that became, began one of the worst waves of persecution against the church. And in the process, Paul is arrested. And he's thrown in a very different... He's thrown in a prison this time. This is a prison that's still there today. Tony Cook, when he was here, I think last time, brought us... It's a hole in the ground. It's a stone hole in the ground. And Paul is in there. He can have no visitors. It's dark. But what he is allowed to do is write. And the last record we have of what Paul did is he wrote this letter to this precious son in the faith, Timothy. Now, Timothy, as you look in First Timothy, had been left in Ephesus, although Paul did not start that church. There were a series of churches coming out of Ephesus, and Paul left Timothy there to organize it and to put things in order there, just as he sent Titus to Crete to put things in order. So Paul is preparing for the next generation, and Timothy is most likely there when this letter is written to him and received by him. So this is very important, because this is not a letter, like so many of Paul's letters, that has doctrine in it. This is not a letter that has... has, It talks about doctrine, but it doesn't contain doctrine. It doesn't contain correction, like so many of his letters does. It literally is last instructions to his son in the faith as his last communication before Paul leaves this flesh and goes to be with the Lord, and the, and the torch is now handed over to Timothy to, to pick up what Paul had started and to leave it. And, and the time that this is in are worse times than when Paul started his ministry. The church was facing some major threats. And as we look through this letter, if I did a series on this, we could go through each of the statements that Paul makes to Timothy. Because the title of this is Paul's final words to Timothy, or final instructions to the church. And they're appropriate for us today. But we're going to just take today, I believe, because there are things I want to get into next week. And, And so all I'm doing is pulling out really three key things that I believe Paul is telling the church here. Since Paul is not going to be there, Paul was a rock, he was an anchor, and he was not going to be there anymore. And the church was facing difficult times. In fact, if you go to to Acts chapter 20, you'll see the last meeting Paul has with the elders at Ephesus. He's on his way to back, and he's on his way to Rome, or on his way, I don't remember which one, he's on his way. And he meets out on on the beach, uh, and meets with them, I think he's on his way back to Jerusalem. He meets with them because he's going to be arrested and taken to Rome. He meets with the elders and basically says, you're not going to see my face then again. And he says, what's going to happen is wolves are going to come into the church. And he's not talking about four-legged wolves, he's talking about two-legged wolves. People are going to come into the church to try to destroy it and pull it off track. Well, now we're years later and that's happening. So Paul is writing to Timothy about three major dangers that are coming upon the church And these are the same dangers that come against the church today, which is why I believe it's worth looking at his instructions to Timothy about these. The first danger, and we'll again get into what he says about it, was persecution. 
And there had been persecution from the Jews. The Jews were angry at them. But, but they were not really affecting so much the church in Ephesus because Ephesus was in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, what we call Turkey today. But there was persecution from the Roman Empire, and especially under Nero, because Nero was trying to destroy, and obviously we know, since we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, it was Satan trying to destroy the church, but he was using the governmental leaders to do that. And so there was an outright persecution against the church. In fact, Fox's Book of Martyrs is written about this time when there were horrible things done to Christians horrible things done to Christians. So the point is, as we look at some of these references to enduring hardship, the hardship was persecution. Now, in our day and age, we think of persecution as leaving church and having a flat tire. Oh, the devil's after me. I had a flat tire. Or or maybe trouble on your job, or maybe your wife didn't smile at you this morning, or your eggs weren't cooked right, or you couldn't get, well, we don't wear, so many, most of us don't wear ties anymore, but you couldn't get your hair right. Ah, this is terrible. No, this is, they were literally burning people at the stake. Families in front of each other. I don't want to go into what they were doing. The, the church was being, trying to be destroyed. But isn't it interesting? The harder the devil tried to destroy it, the more it prospered. And then the devil figured out what was wrong. This isn't working. So instead of persecuting the church in the, thir- in the fourth century, the devil legal, had the church legalized under Constantine the emperor. And that accomplished making the church accepted by the, by, the, by the society had more dev- destruction to the church than the persecution of the church did. The persecution of the church did two things. It separated those who were true believers from those who were only in it for what they could get out of it. And it made them stronger because it made them go back to why do I believe what I believe? When the church became accepted and legalized, anybody could belong and it watered everything down. And that's where we've been in the United States. That's why the church in the United States is so weak. We may have huge churches growing in numbers, but how strong are we spiritually? And we'll begin to talk about that next week. So the first threat was the hardships that they were enduring under persecution, because under persecution, there's pressure to to quit and go back. If you're tempted to do that, read Hebrews, 11, Hebrews 10. Because it talks about people going back. And the, the, the exhortation by the author of Hebrews is that whatever's going on, whatever pressure comes against you, hold fast to your confession. Don't let it go. Because God does not take pleasure in those who turn back to destruction. We're living in an age of grace, and grace is wonderful. And as I mentioned last time, but grace is simply a parenthesis in time. There was a time before grace when God's holiness and judgment was in the earth, and there will be a time on the other side of the second parenthesis when God's judgment will come back upon the earth. And we live in this era of grace that's in between. But the purpose of this grace is to not sit back at ease. The purpose of this grace is to give us the freedom to grow and mature in our spirituality so that when things begin to get tough and the pressure comes on, we don't cave in and fold up. But I think many of us are using this grace to put our feet up 
and to just relax and enjoy the ride. But there's a different, oh, I never thought of this before. There's a difference between a ride and a journey. A ride, somebody's carrying you somewhere, and you don't have to do anything. A journey, you've got to fight your way through things. The movie, the, the Pilgrim's Progress that we did last year, that's all about a journey from when he got saved to the final celestial city. And we're on a journey together. So that was the first threat. The second threat was that the church was existing now in a time when moral decay in the society was getting worse. It was never good, but it's getting worse. And we're going to look at some scriptures that show that. And then the, 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 third, the third threat against the church was that there were, there were people coming into the church, false teachers coming into the church, leading the church astray, leading them astray. And Paul gives instructions to, the, to Timothy, the, the overseer of these churches, of what to do. These are his last instructions to him of what to do to take the mantle as Paul hands the mantle off to Timothy. So let's begin to look at that. Okay. This is a very personal letter. Again, there's no doctrine in this. So let's go to 1 Timothy. Uh, I'm not going to go read through the whole letter. We don't have time to do that. 2 Timothy, excuse me. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let's, let's, go, let's start in verse 3. I thank my God through whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did without ceasing as I remember you in my prayers day and night, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with your joy. So Timothy was going through a difficult time. What we're going to see is Timothy is a young man. And with all these pressures on him of ministry, with all these pressures of the responsibility, for all these pressures that were on him because of the time they're living in, Timothy was wavering. He'd become afraid. And he was obviously crying. He was, he was moaning or, or, or he was, he's, was mourning for what they were going through. So he talks about his, his tears. Verse 4, I desire to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I recall your remembrance of your genuine faith that is in you. So what, Tim, what he's doing is he's calling Timothy back to his heritage. He's reminding Timothy of his heritage. And what was his heritage? Of the genuine faith that is in you. Notice how Paul believes in him and which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded is in you now. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So apparently Timothy lost confidence in what God had put in him. Verse 7, well-known verse, For God's not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and a sound mind. So the fear that Timothy was wrestling with had not come from within him. It was coming from without. The spirit that God's put in us is not a spirit that has fear in it, but it's a powerful spirit, the spirit of the living God. And it's a spirit of love. And it's a spirit of a sound mind, not of confusion. So Paul gives him that background. He encourages him by reminding him of his faith and the heritage of his faith. Then he goes on to say in verse 8, Therefore, because of that, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. That's what the devil is trying to do, is to get us to be afraid to testify of the Lord. It's interesting, in Revelation 12, it says they overcame the devil. How? By the word of their testimony. By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their... Our words are so important. Our words are so important. Satan's after your words. 
He's after your words to be discour- words of discouragement, words of defeat, because they are all dishonoring to the God who shed His Son's life, blood, to save us and to redeem us, who's filled us with His Spirit so that we have His power and His ability to do whatever God has set us to do. And the devil wants you to shrink back because he's looking at yourself and what you can't do and who you are. That's what was happening to Timothy. Timothy began to look at himself and see who he was compared to this tremendous threat that was rising up against him. And Paul's reminding him, it's not you, Timothy. Look at the faith that's been built in you. Look at the faith, and I believe in the faith that's in you and what God has put in you. And it's not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. So don't be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of His prisoners. This was Paul. And share with me in the suffering of the gospel according to the power of God. So what... See, I'm going to get in, again ahead of myself here. Okay, okay. Slow down, Sean. Slow down. Slow down. Okay. Paul is telling him to endure the suffering that he's been going through. To endure that suffering. That, this, this is not fun stuff to talk about. It's much more fun as a pastor to say, Let, let's just talk about our victory in Christ. Let's talk about all the God and the blessings of God that He wants to pour on us. But I have a responsibility to you and before God to tell you the truth. There are hardships coming. And the storm of it's out there right now. There are already brothers and sisters in Christ in this nation being persecuted for their faith. And I guarantee if you stand up and you declare what the Bible says about certain issues of this day, you will be persecuted. We want the blessings of God, but Jesus promised they come only with persecution. We have to decide who we're going to serve. And this is where persecution and pressure helps us make that decision. It brings us to that point of decision. And it's not fun, but I'll tell you, once you make that decision, you're free. Satan doesn't have any hold over you anymore. And we're going to talk about that as we move forward. Okay. Where are we here? Okay. So we need, we're going to draw from these instructions because we're facing similar challenges. We're living in a culture and a society that's increasingly hostile to the gospel. These are all in my notes that are available online. And to those who would hear of it. And persecution will likely follow. We're, 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 we're raising, and I don't necessarily mean in church, although we are to some degree, we're raising a generation. There's a generation now that's, at, that's being raised, that's, that's raised at this point. A generation that, that, that has a, a belief system, a worldview and a belief system that's so contrary to what's ever been taught before. As I, I spent a series, I think it was last year, on, on, on postmodernism and what's been taught in our public schools and what's being taught in our universities and the philosophies of the press, the philosophies of our political system, the philosophies of the world. And it's essentially this. There is no such thing as absolute truth. Truth is whatever you decide it is for you. Isn't that handy? And the way you discern truth is how I feel. So we're raising a generation that decides what's right and wrong, what we do or don't do, which by how I feel. There was a book written by Tom Brokaw, I think it was, about the, my parents' generation, the generation that went through World War II. And he called it the greatest generation. 
And if you ever saw the movie, uh, there's several of them out there, but the the latest movie, it's been out for quite a while now, of Pearl Harbor. There's a scene where they're on the Hornet and they're headed up to, to Tokyo because the, 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 the decision was after the terrible disaster of Pearl Harbor was to do an attack back on Tokyo, not so much to win the war, but for morale for the United States. And so there was a, this, this task force, of, of, and it was a long story. I've read the book about it, about it. And there's a scene at the end where the admiral's standing there talking to his, 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 the, the captain of the ship, I think. That, I don't remember who they were. And he's looking at these young men. And he said, and, and they just, we've just had Pearl Harbor. Nothing good's happened. He said, I know we're going to win this war. He said, how do you know that? Because of men like this. Why? Because it was a generation that did not look for what am I getting out of it. It was a generation for look to what do I have to give? What is my share? I, we've been attacked. I want to sign up and do something. It was a generation that was not looking for me and my and mine. It was not a generation that was raised to be comfortable because it was a generation that had been raised with spankings, not timeouts. It was a generation that had been raised with discipline. Many of them had been children in the Depression. So they'd been raised not having anything. And that built character and strength of character. And then my generation was raised by those that came out of the war, and the, the boomers. And in my generation, they tended to want to make things easier for us so that we didn't have to go through what they went through. And then my generation's raised this next generation, which is now raising a generation. And with each generation, discipline sacrifice, service has become a further and further distant ideal until it's all about me and my. And the generation that's out there in colleges now has been given the term the snowflake generation. Why? A snowflake is a beautiful, unique thing until it hits the ground and hits any kind of heat and it melts. It has no staying power. I'm not getting into politics. But when President Trump was elected, what, three years ago or so, there were universities that shut down the next day and set up counseling centers to help their college-level people to, to, to process that the man, the person they voted for didn't get elected. These are our future leaders. This was driven home to me this week, especially because somebody asked me this morning about Molly. I've decided to take Molly to, 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 to um, obedience school. <laughs> it's not because she's bad. She's a very well-behaved dog. But I had taken those who went through, through, through school of ministry and heard about Mandy. Mandy was a miniature poodle we had 30-some years ago. And I told the story of taking Mandy to obedience school and discovering that obedience school wasn't for the dog. It was for me. And I decided that I just needed some help. It had been 30-some years since I've trained a dog that I would be a good idea. And she's learning to sit and she's learning to heal and learning to do some basic things. But I would help me to, to make sure I've strengthened in these things. Whoa, did I have my eyes opened. The philosophy obedience school is completely different than when I took Mandy 30-some years ago to obedience school. When I took Mandy to obedience school, the method of correction was with a choke collar. Peter people are going to write me letters. But the choke collar was the most humane thing because of what it did. It just gave her, it just jolted her a little bit 
so that she knew that's not what you're supposed to do. And she was to be disciplined with no and a little jerk on the church. And it worked perfectly. She became extremely loving, trained, disciplined, but loving, healthy dog. They don't use them anymore. They use treats. And the very first lesson was simply to get her to take a treat. Molly? Molly mastered that quickly. And I was sharing with my son Chris on Tuesday when I came in. He says, of course, they're millennial dogs. And the course is taught by a millennial. And my apologies to our millennials, but that's the, the reality is. And our flesh likes that. And that's what was creeping into the church. We're going to see that Paul wrote about that. Oh my goodness, we've got to move on. Okay. Paul's final instruction. So let's go look at this. All right, we started already. All right. Timothy become fearful. Now let's go down to verse... Um, verse 11. He's talking about the gospel. This is what Paul has sacrificed his life for, is the gospel. To which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. And it's for this reason I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed... Look at this. This is the first point. For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that He is able to keep what I have committed to Him until that day. Paul didn't say, I endure hardship and I'm not ashamed because, hey, I like being beaten. I like being stuck down in this hole in the ground. I like this. It feels good. No, it didn't feel good. Paul said, I've done this for the sake of the gospel because it was something that was entrusted to me. But there's a promise that's been given to me. It's at the end of the letter. There's a promise that's been given to me. So I have entrusted myself. I have entrusted my welfare. I've entrusted me to the one I know. And he is able to keep me until that day. So there's several things to see out of this. First of all, there is a day coming. We're not going to get into it, but one of his instructions in there refers to Onesimus who served him faithfully and came to comfort him. And Paul says, may God have mercy upon him on that day. So there's a day coming of accountability to what did you do with what God gave you to do. Paul said, I was called as a preacher of the gospel. I was called as an apostle of the gospel. I was called as a teacher of the, possible, of the gospel. And it's for this reason, because I was a messenger of the gospel, that I'm in this situation and having to endure this hardship. But the reason I could do that is because I know whom I have believed. Not I know about Him, not I believe in Him, but I know Him. So the first point today is in order to be able to endure the hardship, the only thing that will help you to endure the hardship is to have a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. And we're going to talk about that on this journey. A personal, 
intimate, because Paul says, I know. I don't know about him. I don't know things about him. I don't know his doctrine. It's not I believe in the principles of the church. It was a personal relationship with Jesus, and that's the only thing that held Paul through the tough things that he went through. And not just that I know him, I know something about him. Because I know him in whom I believed, and I am persuaded because I know him that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. What had Paul committed to him? His future, his hope, his life. So that's the first major point Paul is making here. While we're in this time, a parenthesis, while we're in this time, don't waste the time that you have right now. It's time to develop, if you have not developed one, a personal, intimate relationship with Christ. And the journey we're going to start going on is designed to help lead you into a closer, intimate, personal relationship with Jesus. Let's go on. Chapter 3. There's a lot of good things in chapter 2, but there's specific instructions about things, and we don't have time this morning to get into that. I want to go to chapter 3. This is Paul's second address, and this has to do with the moral decay of society. Verse 1, But I know this in the last days, and if they weren't in the last days then, (laughs) if he thought they were in then, how much closer are we to the last days now? I know this in the last days, perilous. That means dangerous times will come. What does this sound like our times today? For men will be lovers of selves, themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, look at the all uns, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, Where am I here? I gotta find mine. Haughty, that means proud. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Oh, he's now talking about the church. He's talking about people in the church that have a form of godliness but they deny its power from such people turn away. From such people, turn away. For of this sort, I'm going to skip down, let's see. Verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life. Remember, he's giving them instructions for going forward. You've carefully followed my doctrine. My manner of life, how I've conducted myself. The way you conduct your life is affecting people. People know you. They watch you. You're affecting people whether you know it or not, one way or the other. If you're collapsing under pressure, you're affecting people. If you're standing strong under pressure, in this day and age, that is a very powerful beacon of light. Because when everybody else is falling apart and you're not... I have told this before, when I was a lawyer in, in, in Bible school, 
in Tulsa, and I was a lawyer in a small office. The, the, the senior partner's daughter was a lawyer there, and she came up to me one day, passed me, and she says, what do you have that I don't have? Because we had gone through some really tough things, and, and they knew some of what we were going through. And I was carrying some books. I, I, I don't know. What do you mean? She said, no, 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 no. I know what you're dealing with. What do you have that I don't have? And that's oh, this is an opportunity. I said, do you really want to know? She said, yes. I said, well, come here in the library with me. I said, it's not what I have, it's who I know. It's who I have. Oh. I said, it's Jesus in me. She said, oh. That wasn't what she was looking for. And she walked out, but she heard. But the point is, she saw, so your pattern of life is affecting people. Your pattern of life is affecting people. Um... But carefully following my doctrine, verse 8.10, manner of life, purpose, my purpose, we're going to talk about that as we move forward, my faith, my long-suffering or patience, my love, and my perseverance. In other words, you followed that in me. I've been the leader that you followed. Now you're going to be the leader now. You've got to to take what you've learned from me, and now you've got to develop that in your life. Persecutions, verse 11, afflictions, and happening to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Oh, and here's one of my favorite verses. You better put this on your refrigerator. Yes, and all those who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer. Praise God, hallelujah, pastor, this is just great stuff. Thank you so much. I've been waiting to hear a message like this. But make sure you come back next week. Because where we're going on the journey is going to teach you how to overcome. It's going to teach us. God would not put us in this place if He did not equip us to go through it victorious. God does not, does not hate us. God is not putting us somewhere where He can say, All right, my children whom I love, I shed my son's blood for you. Here, I'm putting you in this horrible situation so it can destroy you. That's going to give me glory. No, He's put us here to overcome. That's why Jesus in the book of Revelation, in the seven letters that He wrote to the seven churches, said in each, to Him who overcomes. Praise God, we're overcomers. But if we're overcomers, that means there had to be something to overcome. To be victorious, there had to be some challenge we had to overcome to be victorious. They didn't just ship by Federal Express the Lombardi Trophy to the Patriots before the Super Bowl. They made them play the Super Bowl. So in order to get a triumph and victory, we have to go through some things, but God has equipped us with everything we need to do that. And that's part of His instructions here. Part of His instructions here. Then he says in verse 13, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving... Hey, wouldn't it be a nice letter to get as a pastor? These are my words, final words of encouragement from you. Evil men, impostors, will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived, and you must continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, that from a childhood you have... No- Here's the answer. Here's the second thing of how to get through this. But from your childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Notice they're able to do it, but they don't do it automatically. Right. 
God's Word is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's able to do that, but it doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen because you've got a Bible on your shelf. It doesn't happen because you've got Scripture cards on on your refrigerator. It doesn't happen even because you carry a Bible around. It happens because that Word gets in us, not just with us. It doesn't happen because you come on Sundays. It happens because that Word gets in us. And we're going to talk about that again this morning. Okay, let's... um, Let's go to chapter 4. So the second major danger was from, was from uh, the society that they were in. The last major danger is from, the, is from um, uh, the society outside. The last major danger is from deceptions that's going to come in the church. Chapter 4. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing. That's that day. At His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke. Uh, let's go. I'm, I'm ahead of myself. Go down to verse 3. For time will come when they, this is about the church, the people of God, the people sitting in a pew on Sunday morning. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires. So why having our desires in check is important. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I keep my body under, lest having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. There will come a time when they will not endure sound doctrine. doesn't mean they won't be given it, they won't put up with it. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, you know what an itch is, we're coming into that season when mosquitoes get out there and they do their thing. And you get this itch. An itch is something that you have to scratch, or at least you think you have to scratch. In fact, if it gets strong enough, it'll drive you to get whatever you got to get to get. You start doing whatever it takes to satisfy the itch. And Paul's using that example of ears that are itching. They want to hear something that satisfies what the ears want to hear. But I learned something about mosquito bites. The more you scratch them, the more they itch. Scratching them doesn't stop the itching. It spreads the itching. That all you have to do is not pay attention to that mosquito bite, and after a little while, it won't itch bother you anymore. So itching ears are ears that want to hear things that make them feel good. They want to hear what they want to hear. And as a result, they will heap up for themselves. They'll choose for themselves the teaching that they want. And that's available to us now. I don't like him. I don't like what this guy has to say. I don't like this. But see, when you sit here, you've only got several choices. You can't go like this. Sorry. You can go to sleep, then you're not enduring. You can tune me out and count tiles in the ceiling. You can be on your phone now doing other things, but you can't just, you can't tune my voice out. So there's something about coming together 
where we're forced to hear things we may not want to hear. In fact, it's the things we don't want to hear that we need to hear. The things that I want to hear, I've spent time thinking about and practicing. It's the things I don't want to hear that I need to hear. It's like the things I didn't want to eat as a child were very often the things I needed to eat. Verse 4, And they will turn their ears. Nobody's forcing them. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. When we went through this series on, on, um, on postmodernism, we talked about this verse and what a fable is. Now, nowadays, you don't, we, the children aren't taught or read things. When I was growing up, there were Aesop's fables and things like that. And a fable, although they're out there, they're just not identified so much as fables anymore. But a fable was, was a story that contained truth. The, the rabbit and the, 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 tor, the, the, ra, the tor and the hare. The rabbit and the tortoise. Right? The, the turtle and the rabbit. Okay? Story of... You know, bring the modern translation. That's the New Living Version new translation. And it has a great, it has a great lesson to it. The, 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 the rabbit... <laughs> had tremendous confidence because they could run faster than their tortoise. So it slept. Figured, I can get there anytime I want to. But the tortoise just one little plodding step at a time. So there's a great lesson in that. And so the deception of fables is they tell a truth. But is it God's truth? Because it's been designed by man, not by God. That's going to become important to us in a minute. They turn aside to fables, but you be watchful in all things, do inflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. So with all that stuff going on, he calls Timothy back to his purpose. He says, you endure the afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. Doesn't mean he was called to be. Do the work of what you're here to do, which is to reach souls. Evangelist means one who tells the good news and fulfill your ministry. Amen. Stay on focus. Stay on target. And we'll talk somewhat about that next week. All right, so what's the answer? What does Paul tell him to do? Let's go back to verse, chapter 3, verse 16. Because remember, verse 15, he said, reminds him that you've had the Holy Scriptures in you since a child. Verse 16. All Scripture. All Scripture. All Scripture. Even the begats. All Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Let me break down what that says in the original language. The word inspiration means God breathed. All Scripture is breathed by God. It is the Word of God. It's the breath of God, the same breath by which the universe was created. That breath is in these words. Jesus said in John uh, 6, 63, My words are spirit and they're life. John, Jesus, John, John, uh, Jesus in, in John 17, 17, To sanctify them by thy truth, your word is truth. There are many facts out there. There are many ideas that man has. But truth, 
truth is what God says. Four of you got that. Okay. Truth is what God says. This has got to get across to us. Because that word, that scriptures, that Bible is not just a resource for us. It's not just something we read and feel good or, or we read on, sun, on every morning or Sunday morning or whatever we do. It's not just a resource for us. It is God breathing something to us. Available to us. And Paul says there's a time coming when the church people won't be able to endure what God has to say to them. Because they'll be searching after things that make them feel good. That's what the itching ears are. That's what the society we're in now, which bases everything on making me feel good. Why well, I don't feel that. And see, the danger is we're, we're, we're a spirit-filled church. Or we're supposed to be. I believe we are. You spirit-filled? Then we're a spirit-filled church. I believe there's a lot more spirit-filling to see, but we're spirit-filled people. I forgot what my point was. <laughs> what was it? It was a good one. <laughs> Oh, so as a result, what we tend to do is say, well, I don't feel led. I just don't feel, I don't feel peace about that. And we've taken a very basic principle about the Spirit of God leading us by His impressions and, and turned that over to our feelings and substituted my feelings for God's leading. Let me make it very clear. This is God leading you and directing you. You don't have to feel anything. Just do what it says. There's a verse in there which I wanted to get into, but it would have gotten me off track and spent some time in it, where Paul, talking about this principle, says, says, you know, in athletics, you have to play according to the rules. You don't play according to the rules, you can't play the game. So if you're a hockey player and you think that you ought to be able to trip that guy who got ahead of you, there's a rule about that. And just because he beats you and got around you, and you decide that the be- my job, I'm a defenseman, my job is to stop him, reach your stick and pull his skates out from underneath him, there's a penalty for that. You're not playing according to the rules. Well, God has set up rules for life. God has published by His own breath principles which will cause us to be successful and come through whatever it is we're going to come through. Principles by which we will avoid deception. But, we, but they're not always easy to hear. They don't won't always scratch the itching of your ears. But ultimately in your spirit, it will set you free. Right. So there's some things God has to say to us that we may not want to hear. And the question is, are we going to grow up enough to let our loving Father speak to us whatever it is He knows we need to hear. We're going to talk next week. This is not a church for babies. If you're new in the faith, that's great. But God's going to grow you up. But if you want to stay a baby, you need to find somewhere else. So, Pastor, you're supposed to grow the church. No, I'm supposed to mature the church. We'll talk about that next week. Nothing to be afraid of. God designed us for this. But there's coming a day, there's coming a day when you and I, that day, when you and I will stand before the one who gave us life for you and for me. 
and we will give an account. What did you do with what I entrusted to you? And there won't be excuses. There won't be any, well, you know, my wife wouldn't let you. There won't be this, that, but we're going to look truth in the eyes. That's his name. He's truth. And all we're going to be able to do is give a straightforward, direct answer. And you said, well, I didn't know. You said, but you were there on May 5th, 2019, and you heard it. Now, I've got to tell you something. It's harder on me because I have no excuse because I'm the one that told you. You have no idea how often the words I do on Sunday come back to me during the week because I'm learning to walk in this just as you're learning to walk in it. And the journey we're going to go on is not one that I've mastered and accomplished, but it's one that God has burned in my heart to go on and to take you and lead you on it. So the Scriptures, the Scriptures have got to be the foundation of our life. They've got to be the rule that governs us and masters us and not reinterpret it. There's some hard things this Word has to say. It tells you to forgive those that have hurt you. That's not easy. But we're commanded to do it. Command, we're commanded to love one another. Some of you are more lovable than others. Not looking at anybody. There are many of you that are more lovable than I am. I don't have the most lovable personality. I'm a lawyer. (laughs) But we're commanded. And the question is, Jesus says, what part of command don't you get? I don't have a right to say, I don't like to. I don't have a right to say, I don't feel like it. I don't imagine Jesus felt like going to the cross. In fact, we know He didn't. We know He pled with God. Was there some other way? But He did it. He carried out His Father's will. And aren't you glad He did? So my point is, if we're going to finish the course, if we're going to go through the difficult times, if we're going to not be deceived and pull off course, the only way to do it is according to this Word. This is God's instruction manual. And it's filled with blessings. But those blessings come by being committed to this, not just pulling out the scriptures that we want. It's really simple. We just have to grow up. (laughs) Paul's method of correcting the church over and over again, it's kind of what he's doing with Timothy here, is Paul didn't come in and blast them. Paul just reminded them of who they were. This is what God's done for you. This is who you are in Christ. And then the second half of the letter was saying, now act like who you are. And that's what God is challenging us to do. But we're living in times where there's so much at stake, and it's not just you and me that's at stake. It's not just how we'll do on that day. There there are millions, thousands of people that we have, as a church, we have an effect and an influence on. And whether we do this or don't do this is going to affect their eternal destiny. So we can't sit back and say, well, I know I'm going to heaven. That's wonderful. That gives us the foundation of peace by which we can now go out and do His work. We talked about that on Easter morning. I'm already getting into the, ahead of myself. Hebrews 4.12. Oh, let me, let me finish going through. I'm sorry. Let's finish going through 3.16. 
All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's not just words. They're God's spoken words from, the, from the, the heart, the mind, and the throne of God. And therefore, it's profitable for doctrine. If you want to be profitable as a Christian, this is the foundation of your life. It's profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for reproof. Whoa, we don't get that in church, do we? If I do that, I'm going somewhere else. For correction and for instruction and righteousness. I don't want to get off into this because I did a study a few years ago on what's a church really supposed to be according to the New Testament. I don't know many that are like that. But we'll talk about that later. Hebrews 4.12. Why? What about this word? For the word of God is living. It's alive. It's powerful. It's, that word is an energy, is energeo, which is an energy, a, a moving energy. It has the ability to carry itself out. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Two-edged sword means it cuts both ways. Sometimes it cuts to hurt, and sometimes it cuts to set free. And sometimes it's the hurting that sets us free. It's a sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In other words, the Word of God will get right down into your heart and your heart's intention. But the Word of God is the love of God. It's not designed to kill you if it's done by the Spirit. Paul says the letter of this law kills, but the Spirit gives life. This two-edged sword of this world word does not destroy you, it kills the cancer in you. It kills the cancer of unbelief. It kills the cancer of strife. It kills the cancer of sin. It kills the cancer that was rooted in our soul by being born out of Adam. but we have to be willing to lie down on the surgeon's table and allow the Holy Spirit to do His surgery, which He always does with love and with your best in mind. But if we don't like that, we'll get off the table and try to find some other table and where they'll treat us for something we don't have. Because I decide what I need based on what feels good to me. You'll never grow up as a Christian. You'll stand before him that day and he'll say, you didn't do what I told you to do because you weren't willing to endure my loving correction which comes from the word of God. We'll bring this to a close. Bring this to a close. God has given his word. Everything that God does for us comes from his word. In fact, God put his word in a human form and sent him to the earth. Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. And this Word is as much Jesus as He was when He walked on the earth. Because this is the Word of God. And when this Word gets in you and becomes part of you, it's God in you. It's the Word of God. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory that's working together. So two things we take away from this. Number one, in order to endure the hardship that's here and that's coming, you have to develop, you have to develop 
a personal relationship with Jesus and then grow in it. Amen. The question the Lord told me to ask you, and just meditate on this, do you, is, is, do you know Jesus? Not about Him. Not do you go to church. Do you know Jesus any better this year than you did last year? And number two, is He as a person more real to you, not in church, but in your daily life this year than He was last year? If not, we need some growing to do. He knows where we are. He wants to come and get us. Remember the wonderful story of the prodigal son. Jesus went... The, the, he, didn't go to, excuse me, he didn't go to get the prodigal because the prodigal was somebody that chose to leave. He received him when he came back. But the parable right before that is the lost sheep. And Jesus told that about sheep, ones that are his, that wander off. The shepherd went to find the lost sheep and bring him back. I'm not talking about going to heaven or not. I'm talking about in our walk with Him. So unless you've just turned your back on Him and walked away from Him, if you had, you wouldn't be here right now. Then wherever you are, He wants to come to you. He wants to come to you and call you to come and follow Him. To take you by the hand. So you don't have to find Him. He finds you. But you've got to be open and allow Him to speak to you. And then the second thing is, to allow the Word of God to govern and become alive in our lives. If we do, it will protect us from the pe- deceptions that are coming upon the church. They're already there. They're already here. There's so many deceptions that are being taught in church right now. How do you discern the difference? God's Word. They're teaching out there that says because God is so good, He would never send anybody to hell. That's man's projecting about God's character something about God that he didn't say in his word. That's a fable. That's a Christian fable. That's man thinking on his own what God's like apart from his word. This word governs. This is what God's chosen to use to reveal to us who he is, what he's done for us, and what we're here to do. And it will keep you from falling apart under pressure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us so much. As a father, your word says that because you love us, you will correct us, you will discipline us, you will train us, you will equip us, and you will especially equip us for what is to come. You've not put us here at this time to fail. You've not put us here and called each one of us here at this time to fall apart, but you've called us here and you've equipped us and you are equipping us to accomplish and succeed and accomplish what you've given us to do. Father, we thank you for your love in us, loving us. And our trust, Father, is that the Spirit of God who lives in us will continue to strengthen us and equip us as we go forward together in the days and weeks ahead. And for that we give you thanks.